0: to it. Become familiar with this wonderful, most wonderful book. We are in a series as a church called The Gospel for Real Life, and we are looking at how Sunday morning truths affect Monday morning realities. In particular, we are looking at how the gospel, the good news of Christ, affects everyday life. The the good news of Christ, the word gospel means good news. The good news of Christ is the declaration that God has worked, Uh, A universe-changing victory. It's the declaration of God's victory through His Son, Jesus Christ. This victory is accomplished through His death on the cross for sin. And through His resurrection from the grave. Victorious over death and sin entirely. So the good news is the declaration of this reality of His death and resurrection. And all that it means and with the good news is always the call to respond to it. This is good news that isn't just to be observed, but to be received. There's a call in it to turn from our sins and receive this victory that we're offered in Christ and all that comes with it. And what comes with it is fantastic. If we would just turn from our sins and our self-focused ways to trust Christ, we are forgiven and receive all these things. So there's a lot that comes with this truth of the gospel, and there's a lot of topics we can talk about, a lot of Monday morning realities that relate to the good news. And today I want to talk about a Monday morning reality that for some of us is a ever-present reality perhaps in our mind, and that is the reality of our money. I want to talk about the gospel and money, and I trust in this that God will speak to us through his word. So let's pray that he would do that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, this victory that it has been accomplished in Christ, and that is ours as we respond and receive and will be finalized upon your return, Lord Jesus. We thank you for it, and I pray, Lord, as I preach your word today, would the gospel be the thing we remember the most, and this victory, and would we live in this truth and be changed by it? Would you be glorified in it? And Lord, help me to serve your precious people, Oh Lord, you love You love these people. You love my friends here today. You love them and you have a purpose for them beyond what they know, beyond what I know. And so I pray through your word you would speak those things and touch their lives. Transform us by your words and lead us into what you have for us in the glorious gospel. We pray, thankfully and in faith, in Christ's name, amen. Let's take a look at chapter 6, just three verses, 17, 18, and 19 of this chapter. This book, 1 Timothy, is an instruction book. It's a letter actually written to the young church leader. Uh, He's probably a pastor. He's probably more than a pastor. Someone who was serving over a number of churches, uh, even an apostle. Some would understand him to be. And uh, he is Paul's protege. And so Paul is instructing him. This is a great book uh, just to learn about uh, church, uh, Christian life and leadership, and so he's calling, he's teaching Timothy, and he wants Timothy to instruct the rich, and so he says in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God life. God's Word, 1 Timothy chapter 6. As I studied this passage and thought about it, I was reminded of the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. I'm sure most of us know, uh, if not all of us, the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a very wealthy but very miserable, stingy old man. And if you read the story, if you've seen, uh, seen the movie, the book is actually better, as usual, than the movie. Uh, if you read the story, you'll encounter different characters in the storyline, And there's, of course, Ebenezer Scrooge is the main character, but there's his nephew, Fred. And Fred is very different than Ebenezer. Fred is wealthy, to some degree, like Ebenezer, but Fred seems to understand the place of money in life where Ebenezer has no idea. And there are contrasts. And you know the storyline that, that through, this, through what goes on, Ebenezer's perspective becomes like Fred's in many ways. The dialogue uh, with Fred, though, is fascinating. Early on, uh, before Ebenezer is changed in his understanding about life and and money, he visits these different places, and and the, the spirit of Christmas present takes him to Fred's house, and it's Christmas Day, and there's a conversation going on between Fred and his wife. Listen to the conversation as it's written in the Christmas Carol. It says this, "'He's a comical old fellow,' said Scrooge's nephew. "'That's the truth, and not so pleasant as he might be. "'However, his offenses carry their own punishment, "'and I have nothing to say against him.' "'I'm sure he's very rich, Fred,' hinted Scrooge's niece. "'At least you always tell me so.' "'What of that, my dear?' said Scrooge's nephew. "'His wealth is of no use to him. "'He doesn't do any good with it. "'He doesn't make himself comfortable with it. "'He hasn't the satisfaction of thinking.' that he's ever going to benefit us with it. I have no patience for him, observed Scrooge's niece. Oh, I have, said Scrooge's nephew. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers by his ill whims? Himself, always. The tragedy of Ebenezer Scrooge was that he thought himself safe and secure because of his money, when in fact he was a prisoner of his money. He was a miserable soul locked up in selfish misery and uselessness. And the wonderful thing about that story is that it all gets changed. But this truth, that we see this moral of the Christmas carol, that money is meant to be used to do good, By hearts that are free is such a wonderful moral. And that is the moral of today's passage. But there's a different angle to it. It certainly teaches us this truth. But there's a more explicit focus on the good news of Christ. And if I had to sum up this passage, it's this. That the gospel, the good news of Christ, frees us to truly enjoy riches. The gospel frees us to truly enjoy riches riches. And so I want to take you through the passage. And as we go through it, I want to look at different aspects, and I want to help you see what I think this passage teaches us, that the gospel frees us to truly enjoy riches. I believe you have notes. I've divided the, the talk into three subtopics. Pride, grace, and life. So let's begin by looking at the issue of pride. Paul says in the beginning. He's instructing Timothy, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. He says at the beginning here, as for the rich in this present age, and we need to pause right there, because most likely you're thinking, well, I don't know if this message applies to me. Am I rich? Who are the rich? Maybe there's one or two people in this room who would be rich in your mind, but no one else. And so we have to define what are the rich, and what does the present age may, mean? What, what are the rich? Who are rich people? Some people say anyone who makes six figures a year is rich. Others say, and actually the the government is working with the the, the term that anyone any family that makes over two hundred and fifty thousand a year is rich. You may think that's filthy rich, but whatever it might be or or. Uh, Maybe for you, the rich, rich is the guy next door who has the BMW, because if he has a BMW, he must be rich. What is rich? What does it mean to be rich? Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, who does it apply to? Well, the word rich is, is related to a word that means plenty. And the idea is that the rich have plenty. They have lots of whatever. They have plenty of resources. And we have to realize that Paul wrote this letter in a day When the common man, the common family, lived hand to mouth. They lived each day on the things that they made or earned that day. That's why the Lord's Prayer, which we all use, it says, Give us this day our daily bread. That's not a figurative thing. That's literal. Because most people didn't know where their food was coming from each day. That's how they lived, our daily bread. Most people were paid in that day with daily wages. Why? Because if they didn't get daily wages, they went hungry. They didn't have any money for food that day. That is is the context Paul's writing to. So the, the the standard for the day was hand to mouth. It was daily provision, having just enough for each day. Also, we can learn what the standard that Paul's assuming is by backing up a little bit. We can look at verses 6 and 8 in the same chapter. I think we have this to show. And Paul is teaching here another great section, actually, by the way, on money. And he says this in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can not take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Paul's saying this is the standard. This is the basic necessities that we need. Food and clothing. And the word for clothing is a word that can, uh, is more literally covering, and implied there is not just your clothes, but the covering over your head. So, so basically, the, the, the reference point, the bottom line for your common person was to have food, clothing, and shelter. That was the standard. And for centuries, this was the common man's experience. So if you had more than that, you had plenty. If you had food to last multiple days, if you had an extra set of clothes, if you had some money saved up beyond daily expenses, you had plenty. And certainly some had lots of those things and were very rich. That's the standard. That's the biblical and historical standard. So by that standard, where would we place ourselves? Where would you place yourself? For us, I mean, the standards shifted, we're just used to so much more, and so we think we're poor if we can't buy the latest iPhone or something like that, or we can't keep up with the newest computer. Uh, we have so much. We, we have cars. Uh, we, we maybe are upset if we can't get a new car, or we have a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old car, but they, they walked everywhere. They walked everywhere. They didn't, have, they didn't even have donkeys and horses, by the way. Uh, Hollywood always shows people riding around on donkeys. No. That was like having a a limousine. That's what it was like back then. You walked everywhere. We have so much. And by this standard of Scripture and the standard of history, we are all the rich. And I just want to say that up front. Probably just about everyone here in this room. Some of us may live hand to mouth. But pretty much everyone is rich by biblical and historical standards. So this passage of Scripture is not for the guy Sitting behind you who makes six figures or, or whoever Mitch pointed out or whatever, it's for you. It's for me. It's for us. We are rich by this standard. Paul now says for Timothy to instruct the rich, and then he says the rich in this present age. And this is so important to recognize. It's the rich in this present age. In other words, being rich, if you're rich, you are living, we all are living on borrowed time, that your wealth will soon pass. We are all living on borrowed time, and, and, and it will be very soon for all of us that we pass from this life. And as Mitch referred to Eve earlier, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. I came in with nothing, and I will leave with nothing. Paul says earlier, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. When the man at a wealthy woman's funeral asked how much the woman had left, the wise minister said, all of it. That's the reality, guys. We live in an age that is quickly passing. And we will soon meet God face to face. And Christ will soon return and change everything. His death and resurrection was the inauguration of his kingdom. He brought his kingdom to bear through that, and he's going to return soon to finish it. We live in this age between his inauguration and completion of the kingdom. He has a mission for us in this age, but it's going to end at some point soon, and he will come back to judge the living and the dead. And he will, and he will reign, and we will all stand before him. And the riches of this present age will be just that. The riches of this present age. We realize we only had it for a little bit of time. And that's so important to understand, to get what Paul's getting at here, that we live on borrowed time. It reminds me of going to Chuck E. Cheese. Anyone here been to Chuck E. Cheese recently? I haven't been recently. (laughs) Yeah, when the kids were little. Anyone, who here has ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? To make sure I'm good. Who here has never heard of Chuck E. Cheese? Okay, a few of you. Chuck E. Cheese is this place where you go and uh, you go maybe with your family and you pay about twice as much to get pizza and soda so you can also get these tokens. And it's like you get to sit there and eat pizza, drink soda, and run around and play carnival games, which is kind of a dangerous combination if you think about it. Little kids running around with pizza and soda in their their stomach. But anyhow, that's the idea of Chuck E. Cheese. You go and you play these carnival games. You have these little tokens, and, and we always enjoyed it, uh, as a family at Chuck E. Cheese's. And, and if you're good at the different carnival games, you get these tickets. So there's, I mean, it's just the, the silly games, the fun games, you know, merry-go-round stuff and all that. But then there's games like you, that bowling thing where you bowl it up and it goes in the little circle. And if you get the, what's it called? Ski s- s- ball. Ski ball. Ski ball. <laughs> I hear Ski sh- <laughs> ball. <bruh>. S- <laughs> s- 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 whatever it is. Ski s- s- ball. Uh, <laughs> Ski ball. Is that what you're saying? you roll it up, and it goes in the 100, and the tickets come out, right? And if you're really good at all the different games, you can have a whole chain of tickets. And if you've been there, you know the feeling when you got a big, long chain of tickets. You are like a Chuck E. Cheese millionaire. <laughs> and you got your chain of tickets, and you can't wait to go to the prize counter, right? To And there's all sorts of stuff, and there's the different levels of prizes, right? The 10, ticket ones, which are like little plastic spiders and stuff like that. And then, then the nicer things like the, the, the guy you throw up in the air and he's parachutes down. That's like my favorite. Or, you know, the stuffed, the stuffed animals and stuff. I mean, if you can get a stuffed animal at Chuck E. Cheese, I mean, you're just, you're just amazing that you're like a multimillionaire Chuck E. Cheese multimillionaire. But the reality is, is all that stuff you can buy on, on the internet for about 10 cents apiece. But, but when you're in Chuck E. Cheese, it doesn't matter. You got the tickets. You're a Chuck E. Cheese millionaire. And you think it's great. But as soon as you walk out that door, those tickets mean nothing. And those prizes you got are only going to last like a few weeks. And that's what this age is like. We think we got a lot. We're holding on to stuff. I'm a Chuck E. Cheese millionaire. But soon we're going to be walking out that door, and what you have doesn't count. doesn't matter. And the stuff you spend it on really doesn't matter, depending on how you do it. That's the reality we live in, guys. That's the reality Paul is speaking to. And he's speaking to us because we are the rich in this present age. And he wants to grant us the understanding so that we will not waste the tickets on stuff that doesn't matter. He wants us to be changed. He wants us to be rescued by the gospel. Because the reality is that if someone doesn't come along and warn us and offer a better alternative, we're going to live this way. So Paul addresses Timothy to address the rich in this present age. He tells him to tell them not to be haughty and not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Isn't that the temptation that we all have? To set our hopes on the, ten, the uncertainty of riches, and to be haughty, to be proud, to be to think highly—the the, the word there means to think highly of ourselves. We love to do that, and and if we're not careful in this life, we'll just have an endless pursuit of acquiring reasons to think highly of ourselves. That's actually what sin is. Sin is this disposition and this. And these actions of acquiring things and doing things to feel good about ourselves without God in the picture. That's what, that's what sin more or less is. We could sum it up that way. And we have this crazy disposition to want to acquire reasons to think highly of ourselves. And one of those reasons is money and things. So we want to buy stuff. We want to have stuff. Maybe we just want to have it in the bank like Ebenezer Scrooge and never do anything with it so we can feel secure and safe. And Paul says it's uncertain it's uncertain it's unstable or there are other things we can seek to acquire to feel good about ourselves as well maybe your thing isn't money maybe though it's 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 feeling good about yourself religiously maybe a big motivation for you that you come to church for is so you can feel like you're doing the right thing nothing wrong with doing the right thing and by the way nothing wrong with enjoying some of these things i I hope you understand that they have their place But maybe for you, you're here and you're doing the right thing because you think if you do it enough, you can feel good about yourself before God. And you can give God a reason to owe you. If I do it, God, you owe me. You say, if I do this, you do that. And certainly God is gracious and he does respond to us. But our righteous acts, the scripture says, are filthy rags. They're corrupt. There's selfish motive woven all through it. And we can't offer it to God and tell God we, He owes us. Or maybe what you seek to acquire is just a sense of accomplishment, of being a self-made person. Maybe you've learned you know, just to get out there and work hard, to acquire job skills and people skills, and just to, to make yourself a self-made woman or man or whatever it might be. You're doing the same thing. You're seeking to acquire things to feel good about yourself apart from God. And Paul says and implies this leads to pride. Because the basis of how you feel about yourself is based on you. And we're living in an illusion. Paul says our riches are uncertain. They're unstable. They, they're here today and gone tomorrow. So many wealthy people lose their fortune. Actually, all wealthy people lose their fortune sooner or later. It's unstable. It's uncertain. Our righteous acts that we think could earn God are filthy rags. The the self-sufficiency we think we have is an illusion. All it takes is a little trial in life to come along to totally knock us off our horse and to show that without God's grace, without his goodness, we can do nothing. And so Paul's addressing this that, that there's this tendency to acquire things and put our hope in things that are uncertain so that we can feel good about ourselves. And he warns, he has Timothy charged to command, to tell, to be insistent and, and clear to the rich in this present age not to do this, not to be haughty, and not to put their hope in the uncertainty of riches. To be careful, even even if you're somehow able to avoid the pride, if you're rich, you're going to always deal with the temptation of riches. Riches, nothing wrong with riches, by the way. It's the love of money that's the root of many evils. It's not money itself. But boy, money can be like a drug. It can be addictive. How do I know that? Well, I don't have a whole lot to know that. But I know people who do. The richest man in modern history was John Rockefeller. He had a fortune that was the equivalent of modern day money of $230 billion. That's almost 10 times the richest person in the world right now. He had so much money. And he was asked, how much more is enough? You know what his reply was? Just a little more. He was addicted, it looks like, to money. Money will draw us in. And we will think... It it, it will bring us satisfaction. It acts like a drug. A drug gives a lie. You'll feel good if you have this. And it's all an illusion. That's the problem with drugs. It's an illusion that turns on us and destroys us, doesn't it? Money, living for money, will do the same. So Paul wants Timothy to charge them, to warn them not to do this. But then he offers a wonderful alternative. He offers us this alternative of grace. A better alternative than putting our hope in riches. So the alternative, alternative to putting our hope in the uncertainty of riches is to put our hope, Paul says, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This is the alternative. We are to put our hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy enjoy. This is the cure. This is what rescues us from living for money and putting our hope in money is to recognize who God is and to put our hope in him, to recognize who he is in his character and in his deeds, to see him and to have satisfaction in him. And then from that, we'll go on. Paul instructs them to live in light of that, God is a God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? We are to put our hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That first says something about God's character. God is a gracious God. God's orientation towards us is not like Ebenezer Scrooge. He's not got a little pocket full of pennies and like, oh, okay, here you go. Here's a penny. God's orientation towards us is to be Extravagant in his grace. God's orientation towards us is to bless, to provide for us all we need. For for his children, his commitment, actually, scripture says this in multiple places, is to give us, quote, all things, all things. He wants to use all things for our ultimate good. He is gracious, he's faithful, and he enjoys blessing in multiple ways. Every good gift comes from the Father above. Every good gift. And that certainly includes food and clothing and shelter, but families and churches and friends and, and things like His creation, the glory of His creation, things like art and music and recreation and just all the things we can think of that are blessings. Those are all gifts from God, and He is ever active. And giving good gifts. That's his nature. Every good thing. Just think of that. We could spend hours and hours just listing the good things we receive and then recognize that they all come from God. So what do you have that's good right now? That's a gift from God who loves to give good gifts, who loves to give everything everything for our enjoyment, everything to enjoy. This is who he is. This is what he is like. And He does it in creation. He does it really for all of His people. All all mankind, I mean. But most significantly, most importantly, most extravagantly, He does it through giving us Christ. And through Christ, we have everything. 2 Corinthians 8-9 is a wonderful verse that speaks about this. And I think we have it to put up. A wonderful verse that speaks about this. It speaks about His giving to us and how it works. It says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. This is who God is. And this is what he's done for you. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is a word that means a free and unearned gift. It's free, it's unearned, and it's a gift. That's what grace means. The word grace captures all that. It's free, unearned, and it's a gift. It's a blessing. And this free gift is Jesus Christ himself given for us. Jesus is God, the Son. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are three in one. It's a mystery beyond understanding. There there is one God in three persons. Jesus is the eternally existent God. He's holy. He's the creator of all. He owns the whole universe. He does, he has rights to us and all men and to every good thing. Everything is his under his Rule and reign is his prerogative. He's infinitely mighty, infinitely glorious, infinitely powerful, infinitely wealthy. He has all things, and he doesn't need anything. He's glorious and great, and yet he emptied himself and came to earth, became a man. He gave up his riches, the riches of heaven. He gave up the riches of of communion with his Father. And he became poor for us. Now that's certainly in that he became poor physically in this world, but it's more than that. He experienced utter poverty for you and for me. He went to the cross. And on that cross, he took upon himself the sins of his people. He who knew no sin became sin. He became dirty and destitute and impoverished beyond understanding. He became poor for you and bore your sins. Should you trust Him, He bore your sins and then suffered for you. He bore the holy justice of God. God's right and just and perfect punishment. His wrath, Scripture calls it, for sin was poured out on Christ, and He paid for your sin. He did not deserve to pay for your sin. He did not do anything to earn that suffering, but chose voluntarily out of love for you and out of intent that will be accomplished to grant you the riches of eternity, the riches that He has a right to to rescue you from your sin, to be with Him forever. He bore your sins. He became impoverished for you so that you, through faith in Him, might become rich. That is a wonderful truth. He has come to grant us forgiveness. And all we simply need to do is say, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to be rich on my own terms. Forgive me for seeking my own way. I turn from that now and I trust in You and what You did on the cross. I put my trust in You and the forgiveness I would have in You. Just simply say that to the Lord. Forgive me. I receive You as payment for my sins and now my King. Simply just say that. Believe it. And it is Yours. It's amazing. That's what grace is. This is a gift. And when we trust in him, when we belong to him, we share the inheritance that he earned by his righteous life and culminating in in his death and guaranteed by his resurrection. He has earned an inheritance of all things. He has earned the inheritance of of eternal riches and he is bringing an eternal kingdom that, that will be beyond imagination. And he meets us now and supplies all things for us. This is the inheritance we have. It it would be one thing to be born into a family like the Rockefellers or the royal family. But there's nothing like being born to God's family. It far exceeds all those things. Those people are rich in this present age and then it passes. Christ will return and if they don't turn to Christ, they will be impoverished in the future age. But you in him receive eternal riches. When we get this truth, it changes us. It changes our orientation towards money in this age. And we start to realize these are just Chuck E. Cheese tickets I got in my hand. They don't compare to what I have in Christ at all. I have riches in Him. He has given up. He has paid this amazing price for me that I might be forgiven and be rich in Him forever. Spiritually first, most importantly, but also physically. And the new creation will be Physical. And spiritual. So why am I holding on to these Chuck E. Cheese tickets to buy trinkets when I can actually use my Chuck E. Cheese tickets to affect eternity? When we get that, when we get the gospel, what the gospel has done for us and what the implications for us are and how we live and how we live for eternity, it changes us. It grants us perspective and ability not to seek Hope in riches, but to put our hope in God. And so Paul finishes this last section talking about the results that follow when we get this. Verse 18. They are to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. If we could put that up. Uh, point number three, life in the verse that follows. This is what follows as a result of getting the gospel, of being rescued from this foolish perspective of hanging on to our tickets. Paul calls them now, he calls through Timothy, they are to now to do good and to be rich, how? in good works. To do good, to have an, an orientation with their wealth in this world, to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready, to be eager to share. To be, the, the word share is not just like sharing, like I'll, I'll give you a little bit of here, you can come over and eat at my house. It's this idea of partnering together, this idea of, of just seeing my money as not just belonging to me, but, but being for our partnership, being for greater purposes, both, both with individuals certainly, but with the, the greater partnership of the church. And so when we get this, it changes how we look at money. We, we, we think, how can I do good? How can I use my Chuck E. Cheese tickets to be rich in good works, to be generous, to share, ready to share, to make an impact? And, oh, there are so many exciting ways that we can use our riches in this world for good. There's, there's just so many ways. I, I, I think of uh, one thing I, I, I've, we've enjoyed doing is supporting a child through Compassion International. What a great way. What is it? $38 a month, I think. $38 a month. You can sponsor a child in, in some place in the world where there's needy children. And that child will be cared for. They'll have food and clothing and shelter and education. And in that education, they, they will be instructed in the gospel, in the truths of the Christian faith. 38 bucks a month. You can change a life and maybe a family and maybe a village Forever. I mean, what what a great opportunity. Why hold on to the Chuck E. Cheese tickets when we can do things like that? As a church, we have a benevolence fund, another opportunity to do good, to be rich in good works. This fund is set up to provide emergency financial assistance to members of our church and those connected to members and, and people in our church. We use it to pay utility bills and medical bills when we can. We use it to help put food on the table, some people in our midst. Some people we know have trouble putting food on the table. I would love to see our Benevolence Fund grow so large that we would have to be looking for ways to help people. We would be able to just do so much. What an opportunity to do good and be rich in good deeds. We, We saw the video. We saw the video for Sovereign Grace, and it just makes me think about the exciting opportunity to give money to church planting. I mean, there's a, there's a way to give money to church planting that will change lives, change communities. I dream about this a lot. Uh, I, you know, I, and I dream about it, and I just dream about what I would love to do. Does anyone here know what the endowment for Harvard College is, how much money they have in their endowment? And this is no, nothing against Harvard College. They do much good. Anyone have a figure? billion, $32 billion, the biggest endowment of any university in the country, I think the world, $32 billion, that's a lot of money. If you assume 10% interest, which is a good assumption, it's actually conservative, that's $3.2 billion a year in interest income. There's a lot you can do with an endowment of $32 billion. I think about what we could do if we built an endowment to plant churches. That may seem, cra- seem crazy to you, but let me lead you through my thinking. $32 billion would provide enough money, assuming that church plants cost, and this is in the States, about 150000 that includes That includes everything to do with the plant, not only paying for the, often we'll, we'll fund the church fully for the first year or two, but that means the, the training and raising up of that pastor. And by the way, we are receiving th- uh, through Sean about $100,000 worth of support for him to be raised up into plants. Just Isn't that wonderful? We are very blessed. So about $150,000. So if that figure, if you take that and do the math, and I'm sorry if I'm just losing you in the math, and I'm a, I'm a geek at heart here, but, but, uh, but at $150,000 if you're assuming 10% interest, you can plant 21,000 churches a year with an endowment of $32 billion. 21,000 churches a year. If just 10% of those pastors went to unreached peoples, in three years, you would have every unreached people with a church in their community or within that group. Three years. If you sent all of them if all were planted in, among un, unreached people's group, within 10 years, you would have a church in every, pretty much every village of the unreached world. 10 years with an endowment of $32 billion. Now, you're probably thinking, how do you get money like $32 billion? Well, one thing you could just think of, and maybe pray this way. The top 10 wealthiest people in the world, the total worth, net worth for them is $395 billion. So you just need one of them, basically, to leave all their money to church planting. So you can pray that way. But maybe a more reasonable way is this. If every single believer in the United States, every single Christian, every single Christian household gave 1% of their income for three years, 1% for only three years, there would be roughly $32 billion in that endowment. That's reasonable. And what you could do when we get the gospel, guys, that's how we think. We realize, what am I doing buying trinkets with Chuck E. Cheese tickets? When I could be changing lives, I could be changing nations, I could be part of planting churches, I could be doing things that last forever, not a plastic spider that I have to throw away in three weeks, or the latest iPhone that is just going to be gone in no time. Nothing against iPhones. But, but just think when we get the gospel, how it transforms us. We have everything in Christ. We have riches in Him. He promises to provide everything for our enjoyment. So now we can orient ourselves towards money radically different and seek to do good and to be generous and to share. And there's more to the story here. It doesn't end there. Verse 19. What's the result? Besides the privilege of doing good and impacting people's lives. Like our compassion child, maybe your compassion child, like this church, like the next church. Boy, boy you know, maybe we should just work on a church endow- a planting endowment for our church, and, and maybe that's something to do. We just start saving money to plant churches here. Bit by bit, we build that to plant in this area. But besides the reward of knowing that you've done good and you've, you've impacted lives for the gospel and for the glory of Christ, Paul says something further. The result, verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves. Storing up treasure for themselves. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead by investing in good works here, investing in kingdom work here. You are storing up treasure for yourself In the new creation. Now, I think much of that treasure, actually, the the, the best thing about that treasure will be how that will be actually the people that are there and the glory that's given to God as a result of what you did here. You will enjoy that far more than any physical thing you will enjoy in the new creation, I believe. You can store up treasure as a good foundation for the future. You can invest in the future, you can send it on ahead. And then Paul says this at the end so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, this doesn't mean that you can buy heaven. If you spend enough money, you can take hold of that. God will say, okay, let me see. Yep, you you made enough. You gave enough money. I'm going to let you in. That's not what it means here. It means basically you can take hold of it. You You can live it out. You can take hold of it. You can experience it even now. There's a future aspect of this that, that you will you will be taking hold and investing in the future, but you will be taking hold of it now. You can now take hold of that which is truly life. I love that word, truly. It, it's translated in some versions eternal, but the word actually literally is truly. It's really. It's indeed, so in some translations, true life. What is Paul saying? Guys, when you get this, when you stop holding on to things and living for this world Only, when you stop holding on to your tickets and learn to live free in the gospel to give, you will find the life you were meant to live. You will find purpose and meaning and fruitfulness far beyond anything any riches in this world could give. You will find joy. And you will find eternal results. That's what he's talking about. So why spend your money on that which does not truly satisfy. Why not find your wealth and riches in God and in Christ and be free with your money to give to that which matters most. If the banker come up as we close with a few questions. Just to think about. First question for you How would getting this truth, how would getting this truth that we're talking about, that the gospel frees us to truly enjoy riches, how will it, or how should it, change your life? If you really got this today or whatever point, what would it look like? What would be different? What financial practices of yours would be different? What would you do differently? Maybe you can think of it this way what financial practices right now are more about putting hope in riches than hope in God? Is there something you're doing that's more about putting hope in riches in this present passing age than putting hope in God? And what will it look like to change? How can you express your hope in God and in the eternal riches He offers you through your money? Let's just think about that for a minute prayerfully. And I don't say that to pressure you. I don't want you to do it just because you ought to. Ought is a helpful start, but it's not the whole thing. I want you to do it because the gospel is affecting how you look at yourself and life and money. And you realize that if you have riches, it's only in this present age. You have an opportunity to invest in something far greater, standing on the freedom you have in Christ. Let's prayerfully consider that, and then we'll close in worship.